Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt, one of the partners here at Reboot, and I could not be more excited about this conversation. We're here to showcase the heart and soul of authentic leadership, to inspire more open conversations around what we consider the most important part of entrepreneurship, the emotional struggle. And hopefully, we open up some hearts along the way. We are extremely grateful that you've taken the time to be with us and look forward to this journey ahead with you. Now, on with our conversation. Consciousness is so turbulent. That quote is from Emily Horn, a mindfulness coach and teacher. And Emily Horn is the wife of today's guest, Vincent Horn. Uh, Vincent recently joined Reboot as a mindfulness coach and teacher. Vincent, can you tell us a little more about how you came to work with Reboot? Yeah, about two years ago, uh, Jerry started to work with me as a coach. And um, most of our conversations as he supported me with running Buddhist Geeks were about how I was or wasn't bringing mindful awareness to my work, to this project. And so um, about a year in, October 2013, I joined the first CEO boot camp as a participant. And then a year later, uh, I came back to teach meditation and mindfulness and was really thrilled to be supporting other entrepreneurs and learning how to integrate the practices of mindful awareness, compassion, um, what I sometimes call mind hacking, into their own work. And so it's with a lot of gratitude that I'm joining the team and I'm really looking forward to supporting folks as they go through their own process of uh, entrepreneurship, the crazy journey that it is. And now on to today's conversation, where Vincent talks about the work he does with mindfulness, mind hacking, and how it can make you a better leader. Hey, Vince, how are you doing? Yeah, good, Jerry. Good to be here with you. It's good to have you. Hey, Vince, before we get started, why don't you take a minute and tell us a little bit more about yourself and you know, your background and what you're doing and what brought us to this moment in time? Um, well, let's see. I um, was a computer engineering student who dropped out to meditate. <laughs> and uh, that led me to a place called Naropa University, which you know well. And I finished my degree there. And while I was there, um, and Naropa is interesting because it's, a, it's one of the few Buddhist-inspired universities, I think, that exists. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but when I was there, we used to call it the Buddhist Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that. And, 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 and Vince knows, but I'll say it out loud for, for our audience. I'm the chair of the board of trustees at Naropa, so he's making my heart go pitter-patter. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I was there, I really um, I wanted to bring together my interest in meditation and the inner world with um, the technology um, side of things um, that I'd kind of, in a certain way, had to put aside. And as a result of that, there was a conversation and a podcast that, that was born called Buddhist Geeks. And it was really me and a couple friends' attempt to um, explore the relevance of that ancient practice and the series of practices in contemporary culture with modern technology changing as rapidly as it is and uh, a culture that's increasingly global and interconnected. 
Um, and as part of that, um, we, we started a company that first was a really just a kind of hobby, and then it became a lot more than that because people really found what we were doing to be interesting and insightful. So we ended up building really a company around it, and I served as the CEO of that for several years and, and, and doing so now in the capacity of a, a nonprofit, which we recently transitioned to. And um, as part of that, I also started teaching meditation several years ago. And and part of that has connected with your, your work and Reboot. And I've been kind of participating in the CEO boot camps as a, I guess, meditation instructor would be the right way of putting it. So that's been really cool to kind of bring together now uh, my long-term interest in business practice with meditation and mindfulness practice. Yeah, I and that's one of the reasons why I was excited to be able to have this conversation with you. You know, our relationship now is several years old, and I've watched your transition from various stages as Buddhist Geeks has, has evolved, but also as, and you'll, you'll appreciate this phrase because it's a very Naropa-esque thing, as you've taken your seat um, uh, really in the world as a meditation instructor and really as a leader in thinking about the role of mindfulness in the workplace. But, you know, I was curious, take me back a little bit. Uh, I, I, you know, I remember some of the initial conversations that we had as our friendship was unfolding. And um, I'm thinking about the, the some of those early days and some of the struggles that you experienced and even some of the things that you shared with the group when you, when you were actually a boot camp participant um, could you could you share a little bit about that yeah I mean it, it's so funny because when I went to the boot camp um, what the first thing I realized is um, you know everyone there was kind of going through similar challenges to me even though their businesses often look quite different yeah. Um, and so I don't think anything that I was going through is going to sound unfamiliar to people who are in this position. But, um, you know, the main things were fear, insecurity, not knowing if I had what it takes to build a long-standing, sustainable organization and, and to really actualize the vision that was so important to me. Um, I dealt with, you know, th- uh, really challenges around being so deeply invested in the company that like anytime there was a criticism or attack on certain things, uh, I, I would feel it personally ripple through me. Mm. Um, challenges, you know, connected to that. Um, challenges around learning how to, to balance my sort of uh, contemplative idealism, I guess, with mm. um, the, just the practical skills of, of running a business and managing people and managing cash flow budgets and things like that, the practical stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, and I was struck, uh, you know, we had that email dialogue in anticipation of this conversation, and you were talking about how, in a way, and I'm going to mangle what you said because I don't have it in front of me, but but the how the inner state was being reflected in the company. Is that, do I have that right? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I, um, you know, doing meditation practice for a long time, I, I noticed that I would go through these cycles, uh, these, you know, moods, I guess you could call them. I'd, I'd, one day I'd be feeling great on top of the world, seeing everything clearly, knowing exactly what to do, feeling completely like invincible. And then, you know, three days later, it's like the whole, my whole world was collapsing and I didn't know what to do and was uncertain and afraid and hopeless. 
uh, and yet still needing to like, you know, publish the next week's podcast. Um, and I started to really see that those cycles that I'd experienced in meditation and, and really was learning how to work with, you know, the, the ups and downs of life, that they were reflected in and, and unfolding through um, the phases of business. Um, you know, uh, oh, I hope that, inv- you know, I'm so excited. I met this new investor. They're, ex- they're going to invest in us. That they, they totally get what we're trying to do. And then it's like three days later, uh, they haven't signed the term sheet yet. I'm really scared. <laughs> yeah. What, what's going to happen next? And I started seeing like these same cycles were happening in my inner world as were happening in the business. And they really weren't that disconnected, actually. It, it's like the theoretical became visceral. Right? Yeah. The, the, the theoretical, you know, and, and, and that's probably not a, an entirely accurate word because I know from my own practice that you've, you, you, do, you do see the, the turbulence of your own mind, the up and down, the roller coaster, um, uh, and you do experience it. But then it, there's a funny thing that can happen, which is that you step into your job, you step into your role, and it's like, you, you somehow expect that whole experience will shift and, and not happen because you're at work. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, like there's these two compartments. There's my life and then there's my work. And in my work, I'm supposed to be this person that has all the answers and knows what to do. And somehow that just doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, and, and, and I remember my own, like laughter and crazy response when I realized that, holy, holy mackerel, I'm the same human being in my life as I am at my work, at my mm-hmm. job. And of course, you know, you say it out loud and, and the absurdity of that observation just sort of hits you because, well, what did you expect? Did you, <laughs> you know, did you expect to drop your humanity the minute you walk in the door? Right, yeah. right. I wonder, in thinking about that, and and you know, as a longtime practitioner, I'm going to presume, I you know, even though I'm a longtime practitioner, I'm pretty crappy at this. Um, that you have the ability to observe things on occasion, and I wonder if you could make any observations about the people that you worked with and their responses to your inner state. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you said on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we call it practice, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I work closely with a few people uh, on Buddhist Geeks, and I, I notice, especially being in the leadership role, where they were looking to me to really, um, I think, take take the lead on on things, both in terms of action, but also in terms of kind of holding some sort of um, emotional stability and um, intellectual stability that when I was really unstable and wasn't able to really observe what was happening and just was kind of lost in the torrential, you know, pouring out of different feelings and experiences, um, that they would freak out. You know, they would freak out in response to me often. Um, and then when I was, you know, they would be cool. Not, not always because sometimes they'd help me see that I was freaking out and, and would be like my greatest allies. Mm. Um, but I felt often that, you know, because I was in that position, 
uh, and am in that position, you know, that, that there's a certain level of, of just connection there where people, they really do respond uh, directly to, to my change of state um, and awareness of it or, or lack thereof. You know, it's, it's, it, to me, it's a further explication of that notion that when a leader sneezes, everybody catches a cold. Um, it's understanding that what's going on for us internally in that very, very human aspect of, of our experience affects everybody around us. Yeah, we um, can't hide it. We can't hide it. And, and, and nor can they inoculate themselves from it. I mean, they, they can create some resiliency to it yes. and learn to separate, okay, that's Vince's anxiety versus my challenges and my issues that's going on there. Yes. But uh, there again, I, I find it interesting, right? If, if we were to talk about, say, your relationship uh, with Emily, uh, your wife, Emily, we yeah. might be able to discern, well, you know, that's Vince's stuff. And then Emily's got her stuff. And we could, we could sort of apply the, the, the filter of being able to separate out. But for some reason, we go into a work environment and we think uh, there again, we're not going to be human. We're not going to have this sort of emotional triggering that happens uh, in, in the environment that somehow we're not going to replicate all the same uh, emotional vicissitudes of our life in the office. And it's not going to trigger those things. And we're surprised when it shows up that way. Yeah. And it's extremely challenging when it feels like there's so much on the line. Um, and so I think it, that, that part, the feeling of the vision being on the line, you know, the company, people's livelihoods, um, investors, you know, who you're serving. I think when, when all of those things are there, it makes it sometimes even harder to stop and, and, and sort of reflect on that and, and work with it in a vulnerable way. Because it feels like if I do that, then, you know, I'm going to be letting all these people down or I might, you know, I might fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it makes it, I think, some, some, somewhat more challenging being, being in that position. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, in listening to your reaction to it, I was thinking about the ways in which the emotional stakes of success and failure uh, seem to be so, so much greater in those environments. Um, perhaps not necessarily in our key romantic relationships, but but certainly in in uh, th than in many other environments. And I'm thinking about you know the way we care about the people that we work with when we think about potentially uh, succeeding or failing. Um, you know, as you well know this podcast and everything that we're doing right now is all part of reboot and reboots a new entity. And I've stepped into the seat as CEO and we were having a, um, a, a meeting the other day and I, I asked my colleagues to help me with the way I, I tend to internalize ultimate responsibility for everything and the desire to, to be able to sort of navigate that anxiety that can arise. So if we don't get enough attendees at a camp or if uh, somehow the business doesn't hit its financial milestones, I start to feel it viscerally as if it's my fault. Right, right. You know, and that does that resonate with you? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Like uh, t- t- yeah, taking the responsibility for everything as if as if like yeah, I, I am the ultimate source of, <laughs> of responsibility for everything, which is incredibly neurotic. <laughs> no offense. Oh, it it it, it, it completely it's it's neurotic and it's uh, and it's egotistical. You know, it's 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 reifying of the self in the sense that you know it it, it all flows through me. It's narcissistic in that sense. It, you know, the only thing that that gives me a little bit of relief is to know that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily directly aggrandize my sense of self, but I guess in a sense it does. So I'm curious, what role do you do you think meditation plays in? in uh, enabling you to work with these situations? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because for me, it's, it's been a foundational skill ever since I was, you know, I guess 19. So it's, it's one of the first things that I, I try to use when, when I'm dealing with these situations. And I think the main thing that it's enabled is... First, just an awareness of of what's arising in my my own experience, um, that that I I can sort of see clearly. Oh, this is how I'm feeling. This is how it feels in my body. These are the thoughts associated with it. It's like I can take a step back and just see what's happening in my own system first. And that seems to you know, as as you talk about with people all the time, it creates this sort of space or this gap or this opening to be able to interject a little intention, <laughs> like mm-hmm. a little, just a micro moment of, you know, steering things in a new direction. And that's been hugely helpful uh, in being able to respond to some of these situations because I, I can at least take responsibility for my own experience and see that it's not being necessarily created by anyone else. You know, it's, um, it's real, but it's, um, it's something that's happening for me and me alone. Um, and I think that that's kind of, I'd say, that at the, the fundamental level, the thing that that's it, it has enabled. Mm. Yeah. How does it then uh, impact the rest of the team? Yeah, I, I, I think... I think when I'm, I'm able to, as you, as you put it earlier, you know, take, take my seat and, and be present for my own experience, mm. the rest of the team, I think, recognizes that it's, it's okay to, to, like, say certain things. It's okay to bring up stuff. You know, there's, there's not a feeling of everyone walking on eggshells, you know, trying to avoid, mm. um, you know, irritating me or pissing me off because they know that, like at some point, I'll come around to to, to 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 acknowledging what I'm experiencing and and taking some amount of responsibility for it. Mm. Um, mm. I think that that's what I've noticed. Mm. I think the core question, you know, as 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 practitioners, you know, I really related to your to your thought that you know, turning in effect to the cushion. And taking your seat on the cushion has become a sort of first response, and I know that that's true in my own life. That that you know when the, when the when the biggest challenges are happening beyond my daily practice, you know 
you know, the people in my life will laugh because I'll say, I got to go sit. And, you know, and what that is, is that's me saying to myself, I have to go pause. Right. Right. I have to go stop. I have to go reinforce the phenomena of being here now. Um, uh, but sometimes I think what happens for us longtime practitioners is that we lose sight of really helping people understand why that works and yeah. or the ways in which that work. Yeah. Um, uh, because it becomes so much part of our, our, our response to the world. Yeah. So do you have any, why does it work? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like from what I can tell there, there seem to be two main elements to why it works. And I've heard it expressed really simply as stopping and seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that formulation. There's other ways of talking about it. Mm-hmm. But what you just described as you know that period in your day where you go and just pause, that's the stopping. You know, mm-hmm. It's the interrupting whatever is happening to make space for a more simple way of being and noticing. And then that's not really enough, though, if we just stop. We have to also see what's there to really bear witness to whatever is present, you know, whether it's something quite pleasant and, you know, enjoyable, like joy or calm or clarity or, or having brilliant creative ideas, or, or it's actually something more difficult to bear, like sadness and grief. Uh, or frustration, confusion, um, just being able to see those things and being able to to really know what they're like and become intimate and familiar with them um, because they're not really going to go away anytime soon. And that's something that I think is is also, um, it's a realization that dawns gradually. And I wouldn't say that I fully understand it because I still find myself wanting to get away from a rid of those human experiences. Mm-hmm. But... I think that stopping and being able to, to, to let go of whatever, you know, we're, we're kind of enamored with or caught on or stuck on, the, the kind of attention traps that we get into, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then being able to see what's operating and see how it's presenting itself in our actual experience, in our first-person subjective, you know, experience. Um, like a scientist, you know, of the mind studying and, and, and becoming really familiar with the patterns of body and emotions and thoughts and being able to kind of, um, in some ways, know them with a deep precision um, and a deep care and a deep allowing. Um, that, I think, really starts to transform one's relationship with experience. And it starts to develop all these kind of meta qualities, you know, uh, of like wisdom and of opening of the heart and patience and all these sort of virtues that various uh, wisdom traditions and philosophies always describe as being really good ideas to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and not only wisdom traditions of the past, but wisdom traditions like Harvard Business School describing as good qualities of a leader. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're one and the same, right? That's right. That's right. There's a perennialness to wisdom. It's not something that, it's not a fad. It's not something that comes and goes. It's uh, it, it stands the test of time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you were describing it, um, 
I, I, I had a few different memories, a few different thoughts. And one is, the first is to, to really elaborate on this, because we, we, we've been talking about the anxiety and we've been talking, we talked a little bit before about that sort of emotional roller coaster ride of, you know, when, when you see, when you're so attached to the, the enterprise that everything becomes, you know, so intense for you as an experience. And I was thinking about, you know, what I often refer to as the, the, the feeling of standing still while your hair's on fire. You know, that sensibility that, that comes over when, when you're trying to do this new startup, when you're trying to, trying to do something that hasn't been done before, and you're so attached to the outcome uh, that it, it, it exacerbates almost our inherent anxious state of mind. So I was thinking about that, and then I was thinking about my own experience with my own therapist, and I was talking to her just the other day, and I said, aside, aside from the fact that, you know, I asked her, why am I so anxious? And she said, well, take a look at your parents, but leave that aside for a moment. <laughs> she said, uh, she asked a really cutting through question. You know the way a good teacher will cut through and ask a question? Yeah. And she said, what feeling or what experience are you trying to avoid by being anxious? And it was so powerful. And of course, the feeling that I was trying to avoid, and this sounds kind of strange, but it was actually of being scared. It was like the anxiety was a mask for the scary thought. It wasn't the scary thought itself. Yes. Right? And the scary thought was that the thing that I was holding close to my heart wasn't going to work out. And there was a corollary feeling of disappointment and anger. And I didn't want to experience those either because those are painful. Yes. And so what my mind did was it, it wrapped the whole thing in a, in a candy coating of anxiety and said, here, swallow this, buddy boy. And in the stopping and seeing, which I love the way you framed it, in the stopping and seeing, I get to see past the experience of the anxiety to the experience of being scared right through to the experience of disappointment and anger. Yes, yes. And, and I think where the rubber hits the road on this practice and, and where it becomes imminently practical is, you know, when you see that or when I see that or when anyone sees what's actually there, then, and we come to have a complete experience of it, you know, we really fully are, are able to be with it and bear witness to it then it, it suddenly changes how we operate. We have a new vantage point on which we see what we're doing because we're no longer kind of caught in the attention trap of anxiety. Now we're like, we've, we've like actually faced our fear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've yeah. been with it. Yeah. And then I, I think that's where the, the most practical aspect of this practice is it helps, it helps move us through the things we're most scared of facing and then it 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 transforms us in the process it's like the energy it takes to try to move away from it oh, be becomes anxiety yes and the energy that it takes to stop and see is that meditation moment is that mindfulness moment which then causes the opportunity for a transformation of how we feel about what's actually going on. 
And then that energy, like you say, it's, it's freed up. Yes. Suddenly it's liberated. Yes. And, and, and I think I've seen in organizations that when that energy gets liberated, it becomes creativity or it becomes innovation or it becomes spontaneity, which is ironic because typically the thing that's provoking the anger or the guilt or the disappointment or the, that core primary feeling we're trying to move away from, typically those are things that could require and be best served by our creativity, our spontaneity, our intelligence, our innate wisdom. Yes. Yes. And, and I, I, would, I would say from my experience, even, even crazier and weirder is those fears, you know, that, that I think most entrepreneurs have, they're tied in with um, the feeling of not being creative enough or not being innovative enough or not, you know, it's, it's the very thing that we're scared of not being able to do that's preventing us from being able to to do to, to to actually be have the capacity to to succeed at what we're doing or at least to find out that it's not going to work. Yeah, it's 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 really quite perverse if you think about it. Yeah. It's it's like our 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 emotional reaction fosters the very conditions we're trying to run away from. Mm. You know, it's like it's like, you know, I have this image of being chased by the bear and the bear sitting on your tail, you know, right there. Every time you run away, it's still there. Whereas if you stop running and confront it, you know, or, you know, since, since we're talking about Eastern traditions, right, it's probably a tiger more than it's a bear. It's always a tiger, <laughs> right? <laughs> yep. Right. And if we stop and turn around and, and look at the tiger and deal with the tiger, there's a transformation that starts to occur. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really different way of approaching business. It's like, uh, it's like let it, letting go as the main mechanism for, for being able to step into something new as yeah. opposed to kind of being like, okay, I know what I need to be and I'm going to step into it. You know, um, it's a slightly different kind of way of doing it, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about you know, the folks who might be listening to this and thinking that if I were them, I would say, and I were new to a practice, I'd say, okay, this is all well and good for me as an individual, but I've got a whole team of people. How do I either A, get them there, if I believe this will work, and B, how does this impact that organization? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I hear I hear what you're saying, and I, I could uh, I could imagine that as well. Um, I, I think one insight that that sort of started dawning for me in the last few years that's been really helpful for thinking about this is that meditation isn't a solitary activity. Actually, it's mm. it's a, it's a social. It's also a social action. Mm. You know, because I mean, as we know from from neurobiology. Um, there's this great phrase, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm, I love that. Uh, it's a beautiful phrase. And w- when you think about us individually as neurons within this larger collective of other neurons, because we know that, you know, that actually the way that our neurobiology works is through, through mirroring. Um, we're actually firing and wiring together collectively, not just inside of our head. Um, and so 
whatever stability, whatever peace of mind that we've developed, it actually ripples through the network of uh, human consciousness and, and potentially even beyond that. So I think when people are thinking about this with respect to teams, you know, again, it's it, our state of mind is, is constantly informing and shaping just as others are on us, um, each other. And so I wouldn't even say it's, it's really always necessary for other people to have to learn these skills or do this as much as it is for us to kind of take, to take, to, to do that first and to kind of set an example for what could be possible. And I think people t- always respond more to actual, um, you know, what in the Zen tradition they call live words, you know, live actions. It's not just the idea or the concept, it's actually the embodiment of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has a, a really much bigger impact, at least that I've seen from, from my own mentors and uh, in my own experience. Uh, I, I think you've, you've explained it so beautifully. There's a, there's a phrase that I often um, repeat that I learned from Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer. Nice. And that is when the alpha dog is unstable, the pack is unstable. And, you know, in any organization, the leader is the alpha dog. And and uh, I think what Caesar's identifying, you know, he's making an observation, which is true of those sentient beings, dogs. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, or as our partner, Ali, would would make the observation about horses. Right. It's it's the it's the positive impact of one individual learning to manage or, or, or learning to be with. I don't like the word manage because it implies a kind of repressive response, but learning to be with the emotional turmoil that's going on and and to find the 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 the, the ability to stand still mm. and see in the midst of all of that. And that becomes the, you know, the, 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 the neurons that are, that start to fire together and then they become wired together. And I can see how this would then lead to deeper teamwork. Yeah. And so you see it in an orchestra or you see it in a basketball team, right? And in the famous example, Phil Jackson working with the Lakers back when he was coaching the Lakers and teaching them uh, uh, to meditate together and then go out on the court and the flow that, that, that occurred between player and player yeah. was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was thinking as you're saying that, you know, and, and this is kind of in some ways the magical part of, of mindfulness and meditation practice to me is, because I, I don't completely know how it works, actually, mm. is you know the more capacity I have to to hold my own experience and to be with it and to to allow it, the more I seem to be able to do that for others, and the more they're willing to open up and share what's happening and to be vulnerable and to acknowledge um, you know the things that are difficult to acknowledge. And I think you know even though that feels really scary at times because it's so intimate and so bare. Um, it's also the thing that leads to the most deep and meaningful relationships and, um, and, and enables a kind of teamwork that it's like so, at such another level 
because it's like almost like one organism as opposed to all these like kind of people who are just like slamming into each other, trying to avoid, you know, hurting each other's feelings. Or, or being hurt themselves. Or be, especially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think, I, I think that it's, it's the very thing that you identified that, that is, a, that is uh, the currency by which it happens. And that is, it's not necessarily, um, you said, you know, it's hard because it requires a kind of, and the word that pops into my head is vulnerability. Mm. It, it's that vulnerability, it's that rawness of the experience that I, act, that I think becomes the actual currency by which that connection occurs. Yeah. It's because I'm allowing myself to experience those things that the that the mirror neurons that exist between the two of us within a group get bonded. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I, a- I, I witness your vulnerability and I resonate with it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like in the boot camps that we've done, you know, half of what, half of what happens that's so profound is people really just sharing and opening up in that way. And, and revealing to each other our own deep humanity. I did a uh, Khalid Ali and I led a management offsite the other day for a client company. And there was this powerful, powerful moment where the CEO had said to us at the, at the beginning, listen, one of the challenges we have is that we're not necessarily working as collaboratively as we'd like. And I'm finding myself sort of not being brought in to to assist and and I know that there are things that I can do to bridge the connection between the departments so we said okay well we'll we'll explore that and what started to unfold was that there was this collective yet unspoken belief that it was not okay to ask for help Mm. and the most powerful moment was when the CEO realized that that's exactly the way he had grown up that it was wrong to ask for help and that it would cause him to be criticized and chastised by his mother. And so there was this slap the forehead moment of where they realized or he realized that he had replicated unconsciously that experience. Hmm. And so in a sense, the whole offsite was a moment of sitting still and seeing. Right, because the presenting idea was we're not collaborating. Right, but the real issue was this collective engagement. It's not okay to ask for help, and so then we got a chance to choose what is the leadership culture we want to create. Oh, we want to say and we want to force ourselves to lean into a difficult thing, which is to teach each other and hold each other accountable for that very act of asking for help. It's quite, it's quite powerful. So if there were one uh, lesson or teaching that you could draw out as it relates to the application of these, and you and I love this term when we talk about meditation, these age-old technologies to the work environment or to an individual but I'm really focused on the collective at this point. Is there anything that you would say? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tricky one, Jared. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so many things. Um, I mean, for example, the importance of your individual practice. Yeah. And the relationship to the collective. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think this, the thing I'd say as a kind of, I guess, framework or like an idea to help see why awareness is important, why mindful awareness is so critical Yeah, is, and I think this is something I found extremely, I keep coming back to this again and again, is, you know, that whatever we, whatever we're able to, to see, to experience, to make into an object in our awareness is something that we're no longer blindly uh, identified with mm-hmm. and caught in. And as soon as we're not caught in it anymore, and because we can see it, we can work with it. Um, once, once it's an object, once we're aware of it, we can actually work with it. When we're not aware of it, when we're blindly identified with it, when it's like when we're in the movie theater and we're, we're totally so absorbed in the movie that we forget that we're even in the theater, um, once we realize that, that this is actually, you know, a play in a way, mm-hmm. that this is actually a story that's unfolding right here, you know, and we become aware of, of certain aspects of that story, we can, we can begin to story in a new way. Mm. We can begin to, uh, t- take a little bit more of a creative position. And I think the, the beauty of that is, is, is the malleability of reality when, when we start experiencing things that way. It's almost like the sitting and seeing enables more adult participation and engagement with your life. Adult meaning a kind of, um, I hesitate to use the word choice, but a kind of, uh, of more active participation. Yeah. Right. Because, so. because the moviegoer is sitting in the audience having the experience happen to them versus really being engaged in the experience itself. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's beautiful. And I know I put you on the spot there and you Thanks. responded really well. And I appreciate Thanks. that. As you always do. Thanks, well, that's my job, my friend. <laughs> Before we end this episode we'd like to share a guided meditation that Vincent recorded for the mobile mindfulness app, Budify. We hope you enjoy it. How we experience the universe affects how we experience ourselves. In this meditation, we'll explore two ways of perceiving the observable universe. The first way will be as ourselves arising within the vast physical cosmos. The second way is as all conscious experience arising within our awareness. By meditating in this way, we gain a deeper familiarity with two of the most core ways of knowing reality, one from the Western scientific tradition and the other from the Eastern contemplative traditions. We'll begin with the universe you probably know best, the physical one. Take a moment to relax your body, relax your mind, and close your eyes. 
As you relax, let your attention settle on the inner movie theater of your mind, the screen of your imagination. Begin by picturing yourself in the room that you're in, just as it is. Imagine the setting and layout and feel yourself inhabiting that place. Now allow the picture to expand to include your city, perhaps as an aerial shot. See how much space you take up in this space, how much smaller you are. Now expand your imagination even further to your region or state and then to the country that you're in. Notice where you are in this picture. Now we're going to allow the aerial shot to go all the way into space. Imagine seeing the Earth from the perspective of the International Space Station. See where you are on the planet. Notice how vast the Earth is, this big blue marble. Now expand even further out, moving away from the Sun, past Mars, Jupiter, and the rest of the planets in the solar system. See the Sun shrinking into a smaller dot and the earth starting to vanish from sight. Take in the whole system from the very edges of our solar system. Vast open space and us sitting on planet earth, not even visible now, hurtling around our small sun. Now allow your mind's eye to zoom out even further, moving much faster than the speed of light, and go back all the way to the point where you're taking in the whole of the Milky Way galaxy. Take in the 300 billion or so points of light that make up the luminous core and spiraling arms of the Milky Way. Notice where the sun is located nearly halfway between the core and the outer arms of the galaxy, in the rural backwaters of the Milky Way. How much space do you take up at this scale? Continue zooming out, going far enough back to take in the Virgo supercluster, a cluster of tens of thousands of galaxies, including our own Milky Way. Notice the self-similar pattern of organization even at this scale, how shining points of clustered matter and light come together with vast distances of space in between. 
continue zooming out further and further, watching innumerable galaxies stream by, going all the way to the point where you can see the entire observable universe. Take in all of the known universe with its hundreds of millions of galaxies, each of which contains trillions of stars and planets. Notice how inconceivably small you are from this vantage point. What does this vantage point bring up for you? Awe? Fear? Confusion? Wonder? Notice how seeing yourself as a tiny part of the vast cosmos changes your experience. Now, during this whole thought experiment, every single thing we've imagined has been in your mind. You didn't physically travel out to the edges of space. Instead, you imagined your way through a series of complex thoughts. Notice that as you sit here, not only are thoughts arising in your awareness, but so is every other aspect of your experience. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, the sensations of your body, all wash through your experience. Waves of thought and emotion course through this field of sensory experience, arising, persisting for a while, and then changing. Notice how not a single thing arises outside of your experience. All of this is happening in your awareness. Furthermore, it's the only experience you've ever known. Can you think of anything that you've ever known which you didn't know through your direct experience? From this vantage point, every single thing we've thought, felt, or known has arisen within this human experience of ours. See what it's like to take in the entire observable universe as what's currently arising in and as your awareness. Anything you can imagine as being outside of it, including the vast magnitudes of space, arises as a thought within this experience. We are the universe knowing itself. Take another minute to feel what this way of experiencing yourself and the universe is like.
Now, reflecting back on the meditation, take note of what it was like to imagine yourself as a small part of the vast physical universe. How did that contrast with experiencing the whole of the universe as that which is arising in your experience right now? How can these two different perspectives help illuminate more of who we are and of the universe we inhabit? As you end this meditation and go about the rest of your day, see if you can feel what it's like to be able to toggle between these two modes of experiencing, each literally revealing an entirely different universe. This has been a Buddhify meditation by Vincent Horn. You can find out more about my work at vincenthorn.com and buddhify.com. Thank you for your time and attention. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books to quotes to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together. How long till my soul gets it right?